Welcome to the Arache Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Paul Quilliam, co-founder and managing director of Hummingbird House. It's great to have you along today. I found this conversation with Paul incredibly powerful, as you will soon come to realise as you listen to his story about the amazing not-for-profit that he created with his wife. I had the opportunity to go out and inspect their premises at Hummingbird House prior to recording this podcast, and I found it an incredibly moving experience, not only to see the passion that Paul has brought to that project, but just the tremendous need that there is for this service within the community. However, before I introduce Paul to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you with any recruitment needs within your own business, I would welcome the opportunity to have a talk to you. Let me now introduce to you Paul Quilliam. Paul Quilliam is the Managing Director of Hummingbird House, which he co-founded with his wife in February 2011. Hummingbird House is Queensland's only children's hospice. Paul is also a non-executive board member with the International Children's Palliative Care Network and an Executive Advisor on the Executive MBA program with the Queensland University of Technology. He has a Bachelor of Teaching from Griffith University and a Masters of Business Administration from QUT. He lives in Brisbane, Queensland with his family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Paul Quillian. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Arate Podcast. Fantastic to have you along here today on what is a very beautiful, sunny uh, autumn day here in Brisbane. Uh, Perhaps just to begin with, why don't you let us know your current range of professional responsibilities? Yeah, thanks, Richard, for having me. So at the moment, I'm Managing Director and Co-Founder of Hummingbird House Foundation. So Hummingbird House has been a project uh, that my wife and I started six years ago. So mm-hmm. I've started from founding chair, but now I'm in that managing director role. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, uh, yeah, that's my key responsibility as well. I'm also a director on the International Children's Palliative Care Network Board. Mm-hmm. So a, a similar, uh, a peak organisation that has global responsibilities in, in this incredibly important healthcare space. Mm-hmm. And I've recently had a tour of your facility and uh, you must be extremely proud of what you've uh, achieved in terms of uh, not only of an incredibly valuable service, but a beautiful um, outcome in terms of the actual building, etc. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Hummingbird House is and the mandate for the organisation and what you've been able to build? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, Hummingbird House is Queensland's only children's hospice, which was... You know, way back in start of 2011, we became aware that there was a significant gap in this particular sector. Mm-hmm. So we set about, um, you know, we felt we were very well equipped to um, build a very sophisticated uh, ecosystem to deliver 
uh, a beautiful building. So we have over at Chermside a, a $10 million um, children's hospice that's just, as you, you've first-hand observed, uh, it's actually a licensed private hospital, mm-hmm. but uh, it really is that home away from home for families that are impacted by a child's life-limiting condition. So from day one, we said we always want to, uh, yeah, that, that world-class building and uh, very proudly have opened officially last October mm-hmm. a, a centre a beautiful facility that's actually now supporting Queensland families. And give us uh, some examples of the kind of people that would use the facility. Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, it's for children that with that have life-limiting conditions. So that is really defined that they have a condition or a sickness that means that they're unlikely to reach adulthood. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, paediatric palliative care is just a, a, perhaps a very unknown space when we've talked to people along the way. Uh, they probably just automatically thought there'd been a hospice or mm-hmm. that uh, you know perhaps palliative care didn't affect children so uh, typically everyone thinks a hospice and palliative care is for the aged but uh, it's something that we've uh, the research suggests there's approximately 3700 children living currently with a life-limiting condition in Queensland in Queensland yeah and uh, so Hummingbird House Brisbane is really providing uh, that home away from home for respite Mm -hmm. and short breaks as well as when it comes to the time to say that long goodbye. uh, It's a place that will provide just um, high-level end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And it's a free service? It's a free service for for Queensland families Mm -hmm. and uh, we we also recognise we're probably going to be supporting a lot of northern New South Wales families Mm -hmm. as well. but we only we're, we're the third children's hospice now. So the other two children's hospices in Brisbane and Sydney, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, um, were certainly built last century. Uh-huh. And so we felt that you know this was something that was uh, a significant facility that had to be built and built well, mm-hmm. uh, being only the third. Uh, particularly in a space where the UK has uh, 53 for less than three times our population. Mm-hmm. So when we first started, they had 44. Mm-hmm. They've brought on another nine. We've brought on just one. And uh, so there's certainly more hospices to be built, but we knew that this had to be uh, um, a template for other children's hospices um, for Australia to just change the very national fabric of, uh, mm. of paediatric palliative care. Mm. And an amazing journey for you, uh, starting your career as a teacher and now as the managing director of a significant uh, you know, greenfield startup not-for-profit. Uh, and I'm excited about talking through that story. So why don't we go back to where it all began yeah. and uh, just have a chat to us about you know, where you were born, mum and dad and, and early life and let's see where we go from there. Yeah, well, look, it all goes back, uh, probably born in 1970, so, uh, and youngest of three boys uh, down in Geelong, Victoria. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Victoria, very much the AFL heartland, and um, just, but just growing up as uh, a kid, youngest of three was certainly, I guess I'd describe it as a typical childhood, uh, was very actively involved in all levels of sport, AFL, cricket, that sort of thing. And uh, But born into um, mum and dad, well, dad is a minister of religion, so mm-hmm. uh, we were um, sort of based in Geelong and then moved to other areas around Victoria and then uh, right. Tasmania and then back up to Queensland. But and that was his full-time job? That was uh, part-time to start with. Um, he was working at Alcoa as a, a fitter and turner. 
and uh, doing part-time as uh, looking after a church. Mm -hmm. But I think it was growing up in that family context that uh, I guess in a a faith-based family that there was just a lot of... um, you know, observation of how you actually can do good. Right. And uh, so, yeah, there were many a times where I was probably in the car with mum delivering bread to families and uh, and certainly just being part of how we could look after disadvantaged and mm. uh, and just be a support to the community. And uh, I'm always interested, so working as a fitter and turner, you know, where did the calling come from for your dad to want to commit his, you know, professional life to being a minister in the church? That's actually a brilliant question that I, I that I probably haven't actually asked in the right. sense of, uh, I guess from he he would probably say that that was just this uh, calling to to do good yeah. and uh, and that sense of um, yeah leading people and so I guess that career ended up leading leading churches mm-hmm. and uh, and I guess the the practical outworking of how churches could actually support communities strategically. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up in that in, in that home environment was always about um, how we could actually help communities, and so I guess that's what was then instilled in me from right. from their chosen path. Okay, and so uh, a few moves around where he was moving to different churches and ending up on the Gold Coast. Yes, ended up on the Gold Coast. So that's how old where were you I then? did. I was uh, moved up to the Gold Coast in the late eighties. So, okay. Uh, I did a few years of schooling down in Tasmania, so uh, I remember coming up from Tasmania where the air was so thin, and I remember landing at Coolangatta Airport where you actually, you know, and that was actually December 1986, and uh, I still remember getting off that plane um, as a very white, skinny Tasmanian boy and I thought that I couldn't actually breathe it was just um, the air was so thick and I thought oh my goodness uh, what's dad done moving the family up to the Gold Coast but uh, it's probably been the best move in the sense of uh, you know coming into Queensland and uh, over that time uh, completing senior high school then completing teachers college and then moving into in, into schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you were at high school, did you have any part-time jobs, uh, or were you predominantly helping out around the church? No, look, my, my first part-time job was actually down in Tasmania. I always was passionate about getting that first job and, right. and getting that income, so it was actually doing a, being a paper boy okay. um, in Launceston, which, uh, you know, back in uh, mid-'80s, and doing a paper round in sort of sub-zero... Temperatures. Uh, I was um, wore the dad's John, long johns. Uh, <laughs> I had the balaclava with the little, you know. But it was you know, going off to the paper shop at sort of four o'clock in the morning um, to sort of start that round. I, there was times where the eyes iced up, and right. um, I got out on the bike and I went back inside and I said, "Dad, it's just way too cold. Can you drive <laughs> me the whole paper?" So yeah, probably maybe six times a year. But you know, that's right. where I was just passionate about getting a job, and so it was paper round. And, even some KFC, and then but main part-time jobs were up on the Gold Coast, uh, back in uh, doing supermarket sort of um, shelf filling and that sort yeah. of stuff. But okay. uh, yeah, and then what was the uh, the motivation to want you to pursue a career as a teacher? Yeah, well, that all stemmed back from actually life in Tasmania in high school. They had a community sort of program Tuesday afternoons and uh, but ultimately I was inspired by a couple of primary school teachers that I had, uh, Mr Bath and Mr Sinnott 
and uh, but in that in during high school we had opportunities to volunteer to go and do a, an hour in a in a local school or to do some community service and right I guess out of that inspiration of two teachers that I thought well look I'll go and help at the local primary school mm-hmm. um, with with a few other high school students and it was that that I really just fell in love with the, the impact that I could uh, be a part of with helping helping uh, children so mm-hmm. it wasn't about trying to be a Sunday school teacher but it was about you know I felt there was a an opportunity to pursue a career in education and to become a primary school teacher. Right. I just had uh, my kids' uh, parent-teacher interviews this week. Uh, both teachers are uh, uh, younger uh, female teachers, and I thought, far out, I really take my hat off. You know, controlling my two kids is hard enough, let alone controlling a classroom of 30 or 40 or whatever it is. Uh, not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the faint-hearted, but you get incredible joy out of... Um you know, 30 kids in your class that you've got responsibility for and on with so many subject areas as mm-hmm. a primary teacher, you've got to be that all-rounder. Yeah. I think that's where I just had some amazing classes and, um, you know, my first year was on the Gold Coast uh, at a private school down there and um, I, I perhaps thought that I was going to be 10 years teaching grade three. And right. That was, that was it and... Yeah. Uh, and, and that was probably, and that certainly changed as I taught them different year levels and then, you know, developed my teaching career more into educational leadership and mm-hmm. admin. And at some point along that uh, time, you really became quite passionate about IT, didn't you? It was. I was, um, I'd actually been programming since I was the age of eight. Um, we, we got our first computer back in uh, the late 70s and uh, it was an old TRS-80 and uh, you know it was where you load up the games using the cassette tapes. Um, A lot of younger listeners may not remember what those things are but uh, yeah I was more about how to program computers rather than actually play the games Mm -hmm. and such so I had this love of computers. I had the Commodore 64 in the 80s and, and when I first started teaching I was. I really put my hand up to be the computer coordinator. We it was during the time of the Apple's, uh, the Coles Docket program, where mm-hmm. schools were getting their their Apple uh, Apple Twos um, through the Coles Docket program, and uh, so I'd put my hand up to sort of you know take responsibility of how we could promote computers amongst all the teachers. So um, in my first year, and even in my first sort of five years in the classroom, I sort of always had that that uh, continued love for computers of how technology could be used within the classroom mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so I was I had that fortune that it wasn't just the, the 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 primary teaching but it was also to be you know utilizing technology mm. and seeing how kids were embracing early technology the black mm. and white screens uh, yeah in, certainly in the, the the early 90s it must be fascinating for you to look at how that's just evolved in the school context, again, my son four uh, in grade four, you know, actually has his own laptop now, uh, which is a prerequisite. And you just see education is just so completely um, uh, IT dependent now. Yeah, it's come a long way. I think even when I um, had the first sort of computer within my classroom, and I, I'd again written a program in BASIC where kids could come in and put in a pin number and it would say, you know, hi Tim, welcome, uh, it's, it's Monday, I hope you've got your library book. And and so that was what I probably thought was cutting edge and other teachers probably would have thought, oh, you know, 
I don't know whether we can use computers that way, but it was just trying to get interaction with right. children, using computers. You know, there was nothing flash back then, mm-hmm. and then it was the 286s and the 386s, but now when you look at how iPads are used and mobile technology in schools, it's, it's, it's amazing how, it's, how far it's come in the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. And how did that segue into you taking more of a broad leadership role within a school environment? Yeah, well, I, I guess it was my exposure to teachers right throughout all the schools I taught in um, and to try and assist them in how to best use technology. And an opportunity came up where the teacher librarian at the school I was at at the time wanted to get into the classroom and I was felt that there was an opportunity for me to actually move into the teacher librarian space. So it was at a time in education where... Even libraries were sort of questioning their own identity. Should they become, you know, more than just the printed texts? And mm-hmm. how do you sort of have that perception to the school community that you're embracing digital change? And so, you know, we I went with the teacher librarian to the head of primary and said, look, we'd like to actually swap roles. For me, it was an opportunity to be to move more into admin and more not from the responsibilities of a single class but actually how I could make greater impact right across the school and uh, to be able to you know get into classes of prep right through to grade six and show them how they could use technology so it was also way back in the time where there was a program uh, before Skype called ICQ mm-hmm. and uh, there was a it was early sort of teleconference sort of stuff video conferencing but I remember that was uh, 1997, where it was things like um, you know connecting up with an Antarctic scientist that was the expert. So when a class was learning about Antarctica, um, you know why not use this technology? And back then that was sort of cutting edge to sort of dial in mm-hmm. to an Antarctica scientist to sort of say let's do live chat. So, and and so that person would do live chat specifically to your class yeah so it was about how to you know it was just at the cusp of you know these are the sorts of ways you could use technology right i just thought well this is what i thought would be the future where you could actually tap into the experts um and subsequently there was websites called ask an expert okay Uh, but you look now you know again 25 years on 20 years on um, you know these sorts of things now. People are FaceTiming. And, yeah. Uh, but back then it was sort of uh, very, very cutting edge. And I suppose for the scientist, you know, because uh, for them it would be quite novel and uh, innovative too. They're probably delighted to have that opportunity. Absolutely. And it, it looked back then bandwidth was a lot slower. So yeah. it was uh, again the dial-ups. Um, so it was. A, I, I think a lot of. Teachers would have probably loved to have done it, but it was that fear of technology in the early days. Right. But I guess I felt I had great experience in that space and great persistence uh, to see something through, and and I felt I could add value. So I moved into that role of teacher librarian. I mm. just looked for opportunities to integrate technology as well as still books. Um, but I had then every class sort of come to the library and it was not just about doing the, the normal check your books in, check your books out. Yeah. Um, but it was also how to help the teachers and, and I had, uh, I guess, additional time where I could get 
um, into classrooms more and to be able to work with teachers right. for greater technological educational outcomes. Okay. And then uh, stepped into this role of Chief of Staff, which for most people listening would probably only really connect with that um, title watching uh, American political uh, dramas. It's quite an unusual um, title even across broader Australian business, let alone within a school environment. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I think that developed out of, again, moving into that teacher librarian role. Um, even at that point, um, the, the school, we renamed the library the Primary Information Resource Centre. But as a result, um, an opportunity came along 12 months on where it were a senior executive role was presented, which at the time was called Head of Information Services, which was actually a bit of a CIO role. Mm -hmm. What happened there was um, it was an opportunity to have school-wide um, prep to 12 technological influence, uh, and it was, a, it was a genuine CIO role. Mm -hmm. um, so it was something where, yeah, very much at that forefront where CIO roles were taking off, where mm -hmm. it was about how to integrate technology to achieve greater business outcomes and to have that senior executive role working alongside then the head of junior school, head of middle school, head of senior school, it meant it was a, a promotion at the age of 28, um, coming on to senior staff, but to have that CIO influence and, and seat at the board table um, was really about innovation, but then that actually then led further on to another innovative title role, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. as chief of staff. So. For me, it was probably after just being the primary teacher. It was really never about the titles, but it was almost about um, what the function of the role was. Mm -hmm. but, but that chief of staff role came out of uh, doing an executive MBA mm -hmm. at, at QUT, and uh, the school that I was at didn't have a deputy principal uh, role, and it was working with the principal who, again, was a, a bit of a West Wing um, tragic and, right. uh, and, a, and a great student of US politics that we felt that uh, the school was probably best placed to look at a 2IC role, but let's look at something different. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just as uh, that CIO role was different, the chief of staff role as effectively a bit of a combination of a COO and uh, it was forming a triune with the principal and the business manager to, to come in as chief of staff where the three of us would form, I guess the senior executive as the next level of leadership in the mm -hmm. school. But it was, again, about how you could get the best out of education. Mm -hmm. uh, so driving things like the digital education revolution was pretty key back then. And um, But again, how to have more influence on how an organisation could be run mm -hmm. and not just the typical deputy principal model. Mm. And it would be fair to say that uh, doing the uh, MBA at QT was a very pivotal moment for you in terms of your career pathway moving forward? Oh, it absolutely was. I think when I was in that CIO role, I certainly right across the schools, I saw business processes where you could actually gain greater efficiency. So I was always drawn probably to more the business side of how you could actually get you know, the efficiency dividends, you know, all those sorts of things out of uh, a very fast growth area in private school education. So as a result of that, it was um, I did the executive MBA actually because I thought you know I want to change the world within within education, mm -hmm. and uh, I felt that I, I was wanting to achieve more business outcomes within within schools. I just mm -hmm. saw that schools typically are structured where they have um, a pastoral care 
structure of form class teachers. So it's about, I guess, seeing the organisation, I guess, using the metaphor as a family. And then from the curriculum side of things, you know, it's almost that metaphor of seeing the school as an army, that that cause, what's the mission? Mm -hmm. And it really is that world of academia. So you've got a structure within schools where they have, you know, heads of department. And uh, so schools, particularly in private schools where I'd spent 20, 20 plus years, they had really good structures in that family and army, that uh, that community and cause curriculum sort of space. But schools really hadn't uh, embraced as much the, the world of what's the metaphor of running a school as a really tight business. Mm. And so that's what set me on the path of doing the MBA. I mm-hmm. saw perhaps a whole lot of inefficiencies throughout mm. schools that I'd been connected with. And uh, I felt that I could actually contribute to operational efficiency schools I was doing timetabling for for several years and I you know so it was always about using a lot of business language about right. sweating the asset and <laughs> and uh, you know classroom utilization and all that sort of thing mm. and so I was in a world of FTE and you know you know staff efficiencies and all that sort of thing but that's where I thought you know I'm going to do an MBA instead of just the typical masters of education yeah. the MBA set me on took me out of education ultimately it's interesting you you grew up in a family which obviously had a very heart-led calling i mean nobody becomes a minister because they want to make money and uh uh and then moving into teaching you know uh based on your experiences um of being able to be of service to children and, and the community and so on and so at what point was it that you think you had this kind of realization that within you there was this kind of fairly unique attribute of I want to marry my, you know, social responsibility with this um, operational excellence orientation. Yeah, I think uh, when I look back growing up in family life, my dad um, had relatively small churches and and I think I was, you know, I always saw firsthand the element, again, of that um, community and cause, you know, the, the two parts of... You know, the, the the church is a family and the church is an army sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But as, I guess, churches and not-for-profits and schools, my observations are that as these organisations uh, are wanting to grow, um, often they're just focused on that community and cause and not actually... Uh, focusing on that sphere of their organisation as perhaps a, cor- a corporation mindset. Mm-hmm. So I've had that firm belief over 25 years that um, that if you can advance any organisation equally of those spheres of community cause corporation, then I think that actually leads to significant growth. And mm-hmm. for me, 25 years ago, I heard this, uh, I guess, this sermon that was uh, about community cause corporation, and corporation is simply defined as the effective use of finite resource on a critical growth path. And I've seen so many churches and schools and not-for-profits that are genuinely on a critical growth path. And for me, that was that mindset 25 years ago where I kept thinking, you know, these great organisations are wanting to do good. What if there was a bit more of this business mindset? Mm -hmm. And I guess the IT overlay, I saw where technology could uh, achieve incredible efficiencies. And so it was all that rolled into one that I felt that uh, I really wanted to help organisations achieve what they could by more of that perhaps corporate mindset in... Uh, a paradigm which was perhaps 
very much uh, a club mentality mm. or, uh, you know, really cause evangelistic sort of focused. And I felt if you could bring in great business acumen, that was where I just genuinely believed organisations could grow and flourish. Mm-hmm. And so 18 months or so in this role as Chief of Staff and then Hummingbird House, uh, you know, became your... Uh, next step in your career how did that start to eventuate for you yeah well that simply started from during the mba when i was uh, effectively co-constructed this chief of staff role and that's where i thought that's where all the change is going to happen it was really the first weekend after the executive MBA concluded, so that was sort of 22 months of hell. Right. In the sense of you don't have a social life. Yes, I've been there and done it. So yes, I know so exactly that, what you're talking so about. So those that have done that executive MBA realise that uh, sort of once you get on the train, it's uh, it doesn't stop for 22 months, but <clears throat> ultimately it leads the best lifelong networks. And I think what I realised early on, well, I went into it to think of. You know, how can I tick all the boxes of sort of the MBA to give me more, uh, you know, legal, economics, you know, all those uh, those business principles. Mm. When I was ticking the boxes of that, it really changed when I, I fully understood the power of the network. Um, and I went in there as really the only educator. And, uh, you know, most of my cohort, I sort of had a bit of envy of they were, you know, in these senior roles on probably earning wages, you know, twice or three times what I was on, you know, how did I sort of, uh, you know, how could I even compete in that world? How was I ever going to, um, you know, use that MBA to, to best effect? But it was really halfway through that that I just recognised that um, I was tapped into incredible resource mm. and what could that look like going forward in changing the world in education? But it was that first weekend after I'd finished that I was with my wife thinking, you know, what do we do what's what's next and how do we change the world in education um we just reflected on we'd been foster carers actually for quite a number of years uh, with complex needs children so mm-hmm. my wife gabrielle's a nurse and midwife did a lot of um, humanitarian work in south sudan and angola but we we knew we were going to do something perhaps together and what was it and I think uh, we became aware that there was this gap um, known as a children's hospice and mm-hmm. Queensland didn't have one and we just, at the time, we were renting a home over at Chermside that had uh, come up for sale. And again, it was that genuine epiphanous moment of going, gee, what if this could actually be a, a children's hospice? Uh, we didn't know what a children's hospice was. Ironically, Queensland actually had one that started and it went uh, into administration mid-2009 at the very time when I was doing the MBA. And... Uh, we, we did. We actually needed a place like this children's hospice. Is that because the foster children that you were caring for, you know, that was a very real concern for you that you could end up being a client, or yeah, they, the children that we had in our care, the first little uh, little girl that came into our care in two thousand and seven, um, yeah, had very complex conditions, and uh, but we were there uh, meeting families at, at the hospital that were 24-7 carers, you know, mm-hmm. the typical situation, normally mums, uh, the, the 24-7 carer, dad's working two jobs to make ends meet, and if there were, for siblings, they were sort of just parked there at the hospital with the, you know, the Game Boys and the PlayStation, you know, the iPad sort of mm-hmm. thing to, but we observed firsthand that the toll that it took 
on these families. I guess we technically had an out that if the going got too hard for us, we could technically give the children back to the department saying mm-hmm. it's too hard, you know, we need respite. And, uh, and we were sort of at the end of the rope uh, ourselves, sort of, again, working executive role, um, leading a school, also, um, you know, doing the executive MBA, um, even when we were fo- um, had foster children, we just became aware that there were families that had great needs, mm-hmm. and we were probably felt best placed that we could actually bring a network together and mm-hmm. achieve change by delivering Queensland's only children's hospice. Mm-hmm. So how does that all start then? Well, it just started by going, um, you know, how do we do this? Uh, so I rang up a couple of uh, um, MBA buddies that said, look, we've done this 24-month journey. I thought, you know, we were going to change education, but, you know, we feel that there's this absolute gap in paediatric palliative care that Queensland needs a children's hospice. Um, we had done some preliminary research that there was the one in Brisbane, uh, one in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, you know, what do you think? Um, you know, what we need is we need governance, we need, you know... We, we had no idea of the content, really, other than our own lived experience mm. with, with the foster world, but it was probably we had a bit of MBA bravado to go, you know, I believe we can actually understand the context, and it was probably about how do we accelerate to market uh, a much-needed service. Um, we felt that... So we set up a charity called Queensland Kids, uh, so that was February 2011 that we incorporated, and uh, I was founding chairman and I had two good mates uh, that were senior executives in their own right and we said, okay, let's understand uh, the complex um, landscape. How do we navigate um, and how do we actually build a children's hospice as soon as possible because there are families that desperately need it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, fast forward to October last year, we officially opened, but that six years was the most amazing learning. Mm. But without the MBA, without good governance, and without a really deep understanding of what it took, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So it, it hasn't been what I would say, Paul and Gabriel's. It's just been, we've felt we've perhaps orchestrated mm-hmm. um, all the professionals, uh, almost like that 100-piece you know, symphony, uh, we've just had experts that have come along and we've been able to deliver the drive, the enthusiasm, the passion and uh, and and to deliver a building. So, yeah, that 2011, the first year of running a charity, I was still Chief of Staff and uh, we recognised that at the end of 2011 that, uh, you know, we weren't able to achieve the change or accelerate as fast as we wanted to, mm-hmm. uh, to deliver this home away from home for families, um, if I was still in that full-time role. So we, we made a calculated risk and um, we felt, let's do this. Uh, we'd built up some equity through flicking property. We'd done a lot of renovating over okay. uh, during our married time. And uh, so we were in a position of no excuses to sort of say, well, why wouldn't we do this full-time? We've built 12 months of really good relationships. but uh, And so, yeah, we felt that, that was, I guess, our own calling um, and not to be chief of staff forever, forever and change schools. But we felt that uh, with our organisational experience, let's just do this well. And so you gave up 
even having an income for that period? Yeah, we, in that early stage, uh, even in 2011, we devoted everything towards bootstrapping it ourselves. So we were legitimately able to, as a registered charity, able to raise money, but we wanted to put that into a building fund. And, uh, and we felt that we needed to actually pay for all administration costs in the early years ourselves. So we didn't want to touch any money that had been raised for the building. And to be honest, I, I guess we thought, you know, with such a meritorious cause that uh, we'd raise millions, you know, in, in less than 12 months, particularly with, uh, with those executive MBA post norms. And we thought, you know, we've got the network, um, you know, it's such a need. Um, but we just felt, you know, there's no excuses. So, yeah, we basically worked almost two years full-time voluntary to just make sure it, it, it worked. And so over that six-year period, what were some of the, uh, the critical milestones uh, that enabled you to get the outcomes that you have? Well, I think for us, as we kept <clears throat> building that solid business case, we, we quickly understood the context. Uh, we were part of... Is the agitation or the facilitation of uh, a federal parliamentary inquiry into palliative care and a, a state parliamentary inquiry into palliative care uh, back in 2012. And it was just, again, we spent a lot of time just meeting with families mm -hmm. and, and understanding that context. Uh, there's an old adage about, I think it uh, talks about five-year bamboo, where it's all the all the, the, the bamboos underground for sort of the first three to four years, and then in that fifth year it just goes mm -hmm. gangbusters. And, and I think we, we reflect now, and in that early stage we put everything into metaphorically pouring that slab. You know, we, we had lofty ideas of sort of, again, that metaphorical high tower we wanted to build mm -hmm. but we just knew everything had to be invested in that foundations mm -hmm. the, the slab and so we needed the trust of everyone um again people probably looked at us going what do they know about you know building a children's hospice but we again look back at that whole you know what i said at the beginning that community cause corporation those paradigms and felt that belief if we could advance all three equally mm -hmm. And look at that, that um, you know, how do we advance the community side of things by stewarding family stories and advocating for families? How do we present the cause and the advocacy? But also we had to treat it very much as this charity has to have just as much business acumen mm -hmm. and commercial astuteness as, you know, so we, we wanted to run it the charity just as good as, as a commercial entity. And well, in fact, in many respects... Uh particularly where you are so limited in terms of your financial resources, um, you have to even be better, don't you? Absolutely. So I think we went from perhaps a little bit that cliche of, well, we're not a not-for-profit, we're a not-for-loss. And, mm -hmm. uh, and But we felt really strongly positioned with the way our um, the business model that we put forward. Um, we spent a lot of time, we, we met with uh, young care directors and uh, young care CEOs. Back then, mm -hmm. young care was sort of the, the charity of, that was that seemed to be doing it best. And I, I just uh, interviewed Marina Vitt uh, for okay. the podcast, uh, who was the uh, first CEO of Young She Care. was, yes. And then, uh, so we hadn't met with Marina, although I know she presented at this pallet, uh, palliative care inquiry that we were there in 2012. But after that, it was uh, Mark Foley and Sam Kennelly where we just simply said, 
you know, how do we accelerate to market? Mm. And the advice uh, from one of the directors, Nick Bonifan, I remember him saying, look, you need to, if you can get land, if you can get a care service provider, if you can get government and philanthropists, you can get those four elements. That's the way that they did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the time, uh, their model, Wesley Mission Brisbane, uh, or Wesley Mission Queensland, um, they they were the care service partners for young care to Mm -hmm. deliver all the care. So... For us, we we decided let's build an excruciatingly compelling business case. So we we picked the brains of more than thirty executive MBAs and lecturers to say how could this be overwhelmingly persuasive? Mm-hmm. That by bringing all the ingredients together, I think to start with there was a mindset: do we do we just get land and do the typical charity? sort of, uh, you know, approach, but we actually felt that we've got such an incredible network, we have to do it different. So we pulled everything together. We had all the endorsements from uh, Palliative Care Queensland, Palliative Care Australia, the International Children's Palliative Care Network, State Coroner, you know, everywhere when we engaged politically, when they were saying, well, have you thought of, you know, talking with this person? Well, we had. Mm -hmm. Um, it was an approach where we wanted to leave every stone unturned. We wanted to make sure it was just there. It was just uh, whenever a politician asked a question, we had the answers. Mm-hmm. And so we felt we had the absolute ecosystem nailed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to be honest, too, when you're talking about milestones, we, we took full advantage of the, the federal election in September 20. Uh, 13, uh, we had very favourable recommendations from the state and federal inquiry. We felt we had this, again, overwhelmingly persuasive business case. So we just kept spending six months relentlessly pursuing and presenting to politicians Mm -hmm. and said, this is something that, um, you know, we actually want half funding for the CapEx and the OpEx. So we went from this little, this initial thought of going, let's see if we can get land to this sense of going, let's, uh, I want government to give us 11 million over mm-hmm. seven years. We need state and federal involved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the milestone um, in July 2013, we had uh, the coalition said, let's make the announcement. Uh, all the numbers stack up. This is something that's absolutely crucial. And But at that point, we had, we had absolute bipartisan um, commitments. We'd uh, had Kevin Rudd was very familiar with Hummingbird House and we'd met with him a number of times. So we'd, we'd met with all sides and everyone was committed to saying, you know what, the business case, every, mm. you've got all the ducks lined up. And for us, I look back now, we had Community Cause Corporation all lined up. We had partnership with Wesley Mission Queensland to deliver the service. And uh, yeah, everything just was in some ways perhaps a little bit textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. said um, earlier, you kind of made a bit of a throwaway comment, uh, you know, we expected that we'd raise millions of dollars within the first year. Obviously, fundraising, you know, was a particular uh, challenging element of what you wanted to achieve. What, what were some of the other things that perhaps you expected to be easier than they ended up being? Yeah, I think, again, we've approached it simply, what I learnt from the executive MBA, and it was during the GFC, I remember, somebody, I think it was probably in a sermon, somebody said, you know, where can you invest with confidence? Mm-hmm. And, and it was purely you invest in relationships, and I think that's what we wanted to pride ourselves differently. We thought, I don't want to be rattling tins like charities. We're never going to raise the monies that we need to build a children's hospice 
in the time frame that we actually felt families in Queensland needed it. Mm. Uh, so I think for us, we, we looked at not just the sustainability uh, conversation, it was more about genuine revenue resilience. And we knew that was only going to come from uh, relationships. So historically, a lot of children's hospices start uh, by passionate parents that lose their own child. And, mm. and they've got the passion. Uh, so they've got the cause and they've often got the community. But we just felt that uh, we've got such deeply uh, entrenched relationships that we've been building that we knew that's what government required to de-risk uh, their funding. Mm. Um, so we just felt, again, we had all the ducks lined up from uh, corporate partners that were, um, a, their approach was that they wanted a, a long-term relationship and something more than just the sustainability. Uh, but again, everywhere we had family stories which were critical for us. But yeah, that fundraising, um, you know, we actually felt, yeah, how we can actually do that? Government's now actually committed. Mm. Um, and once the election, in uh, again, very strategic, uh, once the re result was known in 2013, we knew we had 11 million out of 22 million. But I think for us too, it was that approach that you'd appreciate that we went into it with all uh, conversations saying, we've actually got to count the cost. This is actually a $22 million project over seven years. It wasn't perhaps the typical trad uh, charity of going, let's just get the land first. Mm. Let's just then get, let's reach the mm -hmm. next stage. We had to be absolutely confident that we'd had the business acumen invested in that sophisticated uh, business plan and mm -hmm. case for support that was actually going to get government over the line corporate over the line and ultimately uh, it was going to get a major donor over the line to match government funding so we could actually commence the build. Mm -hmm. And who did that end up being? So our donor, uh, a, a, an amazing Australian um, called Gary Pemberton who'd been previous uh, CEO of Brambles and mm -hmm. uh, previous chair of Qantas and Billabong and um, you know we remember again lining up all the ducks, one critical one was media and I remember uh, way back in, uh, it was Easter 2014, where we knew the Duchess was coming to town. Um, we'd actually formally twinned with her hospice over in the UK. Okay. And so we'd built a strong relationship with Fran Whiting, the, the current yep. journalist. And Fran wanted to do an article, and I just said, Fran, I just don't feel where everything's lined up. We've got government commitment. We just actually didn't have the major donor at that time. But... When we found the Duchess was coming to Bear Cottage down in Sydney, we were thinking, well, how do we get down to Bear Cottage to talk firsthand to the Duchess? But through our relationship uh, with East Anglia, we got um, connected from Kensington Palace and uh, we got the, the call to say, look, the Duchess would, would like to meet with you. And uh, when she was coming to the state reception in Queensland. Oh, so I was able to ring up Fran and said, Fran, now's the time. Um, how can we go about getting the Q Weekend story? We've mm -hmm. got the families, you've interviewed, you know, how do we line it all up so that we can have this, our, our big article in the Q Weekend on that Easter weekend when uh, the Duchess of Cambridge was coming to town? Mm -hmm. And subsequently we were meeting on that day. And so the article came out. And, uh, you know, Gary and Mark Pemberton were one of a number of people that read that article and uh, said, we want to meet with you. And... Uh, and we went and met with them, and um, and and the the story is that uh, yeah, I still remember it. The, it was the the fifth of the fifth, 
which ironically was the birth date of our very first foster child. Okay. And was uh, the birth date of actually one of our key families that uh, was desperate for Hummingbird House. So I remember we met with uh, this extraordinary philanthropic couple that have done, you know, so many wonderful things and but have been really behind-the-scenes philanthropists. Mm-hmm. But... They read the story, wanted to meet with us, and um, and I guess we look back now, the rest is history. We spent a number of hours telling them everything about the journey and what we'd done, and and effectively the mighty army we'd assembled to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And I uh, remember they looked at each other and said, look, we'd like to commit $3 million to match the government's $3 million. Mm-hmm. so you can get cracking and uh, build this wonderful facility for these families. So... And as a result of that article on that on that um, on that Easter weekend, um, we had then a, num- a number of other major gifts that contributed towards the build. And uh, so, without that overwhelmingly persuasive case for support and ensuring that we had that ecosystem that were backing us all the way, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, even to this day, we're probably the, the the fastest children's hospice that's been ever built and opened. Right. Um, from a couple of co-founders that really had no clue other than mm. we'd fostered a child with uh, with um, a, a complex condition. And so for us, very proud of the fact that um, we've got this, that we understood the context and we had mm. people that also understood the context with us mm. and uh, have been partnered with us and have, have wanted to make sure that this is the, the, the best thing that for, for Queensland families. Mm. And now six years later you have this uh, beautiful facility and uh, I, as I said earlier I've had the opportunity to have a look around and I'd certainly encourage people to do that. And uh, more recently you've had quite a lot of support from Channel 10 haven't you? Yeah, Network 10's been amazing. Uh, they, again, just through relationships, um, they've been a significant corporate partner along with uh, Career Mail and, uh, and groups like Coles and Zups where they've just, we've built a long relationship and uh, they were able to, through that relationship, they got us connected to the living room. So uh, the living room came out in uh, September and uh, did basically a, a makeover of the, of Hummingbird House prior mm-hmm. to the official opening. So Barry Dubois and the team came up and uh, just did an amazing job of, of transforming a backyard to make it beautiful for mm-hmm. families. So, yeah, so Network 10, um, yeah, they've been great. And as a result, um, you know, Barry Dubois has now joined our board. And uh, so, but again, everything has just come out of investing in relationships, mm-hmm. our best donations, um, and, and our belief for the future of operational resilience always comes back to money's the byproduct, keep mm-hmm. investing in relationships, keeping investing in a network that wants to do something extraordinary and significant for Queensland. Fantastic. And you've talked, you said uh, it's almost been textbook and you do, the way that you've talked about you know, the, this journey uh, has been talking about a lot of the positive elements. But if you look back now in hindsight, um, you know, is there anything that happened along the way you thought, oh, gee, if I'd had my time over, I would have done that differently in order to get a better result? Yeah, I look back now, the number one thing we'd, we would never do differently is being underpinned with collaboration. Um, you know, we, we had that belief that uh, we couldn't do this ourselves. Um, 
the end goal was always about how to release. Like it's almost in a fostering metaphor. Mm-hmm. It was this sense of going, I don't want to, we don't want to be these 70-year-old patriarchal, matriarchal sort of charity founders mm-hmm. that are just hanging on to this one charity. It was about how we could uh, really deliver a very sustainable facility so that, that Wesley Mission Queensland could operate for the next 50 to 100 years as the experts and allow... Paul and Gabriel to sort of um, reduce the co-founder's shadow once we once we opened and to be working more on the business than in the business. I think at the start we, we probably underestimated. Uh, we probably wanted to build quicker, mm-hmm. um, but for us it, again that Chinese bamboo thing. It was never underestimate the the depth of foundations that if you pour into that slab you're always going to be able to build bigger mm-hmm. um, you know I think we perhaps wanted to build you know what's the the thinnest slab we could build to just get it done mm-hmm. um, and what we've actually identified is just you keep pouring the slab and get it deeper and deeper if you want to go higher and higher and for us now um, you know I look we probably uh, Coming back to the question, probably what we looked at was perhaps, to be honest, I shared maybe too widely um, more of a change the world narrative if we could just get this one. And still, we're passionate about more hummingbird houses. We're mm-hmm. passionate about a model where now, how do we help 21 million children across the world that are living with a life-limiting condition? So mm-hmm. in my internet, with my international governance hat on, I'm thinking, how can we replicate um, Earlier on in the piece, um, you know, perhaps when you share with too many people what ultimately you want to do beyond just the one, and look, we we prefaced everything saying we don't want to expand too quickly. Yeah. But we knew we had to have a very sustainable model. So sorry. So what was the downside of being so open about the sort of the grander vision? Well, I think when you get... Look, I was so passionate about we've just got to get this one done and we could build one in Townsville, we could build one in Adelaide, Perth, Greater Western Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um, We met a lot of corporates that uh, were just sort of going, oh, man, we've probably heard this all before about charity founders that want to change the world. But over time... So the, the, uh, the fact that you were talking so big, perhaps engendered a lack of confidence you know these guys have got their heads in the cloud they don't have their feet on the ground yeah i think there was elements that particularly going to politicians right we went to probably met with over 30 politicians Mm -hmm. state federal to sort of again keep presenting that case and i understand politicians probably hear people all the time with incredible passion um incredible um, motivation and enthusiasm in that whole perhaps community sphere mm-hmm. um, but what I guess had surprised them that every that we built this yeah this deep foundation right across pediatric palliative care you know we had significant hospital buy-in we'd had uh, family story, stories that were shared widely it, that and we always go back to um, Steve Covey Jr.'s speed of trust where mm-hmm. it was ca- about character and competence. So I sort of look now and think, you know, the three Cs, the, you know, is it five Cs, is it 20 Cs, whatever <laughs> it was, whether it's charisma, I think that had been that risk that we were very charismatic because mm. we knew deeply the, the, the families that needed this service. Mm. And 
those people, those corporates, those politicians that didn't have that understanding and had mm. probably heard it all before, perhaps had seen us as oh, they're just another passionate group yeah. that's trying to get funding. And mm. I think changed when we were saying, you know what, we're actually after 11 million over seven years. And we went to state and federal and said, you know, we're, we're after 5.5 million each over seven years to make this happen. So becoming very explicit about the actual quantifiable requirements. Yeah, count yeah. the cost and to ensure that you weren't the charity that had this big idea right. but couldn't deliver it. Sure. And I think every element was about how we could de-risk government. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that came back to, uh, you know, the, the Nick Bonifant uh, Young Care Director conversation about lining up all the ducks um, to, again, make it excruciatingly compelling for government to say, we've got to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was more than just the advocacy. We knew we wanted money from government, but again, given that there'd been a children's hospice that that wasn't sustainable, Mm -hmm. it was about um, arguing the case for both state and federal to buy in for the first Mm -hmm. five years' operations. Well, there's another C for you, compelling, you know. And then the C (laughs) that comes up for me as you were talking is courage. I mean, uh, uh, it was a courageous choice to go into this with eyes in many respects wide open, but still, I suppose, in some degree, quite naive about what it would mean for you and um, a very courageous and uh, great outcomes. And so now looking towards the future, what's next for you, do you think? Well, the next thing for us is simply the the proof in the pudding is to ensure that Hummingbird House, Mm -hmm. Brisbane, is revenue resilient. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, we've, we've built the building. We've got again, incredible corporate and community support. I think the great risk now is that uh, people can go, gee, what's been achieved in six years is amazing. They've built this amazing facility. I think the risk is that people might go, oh, well, gee, they must be loaded with, uh, yeah. you know, with cash flow to, for what they've done. Mm. Um, it really is now we've got to keep raising uh, you know, millions mm-hmm. each year to continue this free service for families. So mm-hmm. our passion now is to ensure that um, the what's next will come on the back of ensuring that Hummingbird House Br- Brisbane mm-hmm. is sustainable because you know we constantly want to give out of our overflow. Every charity, I would suspect, wants to be part of a not-for-profit where you've actually got overflow, that you meet mm-hmm. the daily running costs of... You know what you've got to do the mission yeah you know, the old adage is if it, no margin no mission so this is for us you know three to four million to run it each year mm-hmm. i want to be um, part of an organization be part of that charitable space where we're actually bringing in five to six seven mm-hmm. million a year where we can actually go well the what's next is the margin you know that will drive mission mm-hmm. so you know run faster for us in the sense all the learnings of the last six years we know we have to um, keep partnering with a nationally care, uh, nat- nationally reputable care service provider like Wesley Mission Queensland um, because if we're going to gra- make greatest impact and uh, change the Australian context for children's hospices, we need more Portland Gabriels mm-hmm. first and foremost that actually, you know, I don't want to move to these other regions or do back-to-back six-year projects. Mm-hmm. It really is about now how do we accelerate to market um, other children's hospices that that genuinely work together as an integrative solution that works with hospitals and the community 
but um, you know I don't want to spread myself too thin mm. so I think the what's next for us is um, you know there's great needs still in other Australian states and even at that global level but um, you know I know if, if, if corporates and community are listening to this podcast that uh, you know if we can guarantee that Hummingbird House exists now beyond our lifetimes and it's still there 50 to 100 years I know that we want a sustainable governance framework that can actually be part of a board that says, gee, you know, how do we make the next ones happen? Mm -hmm. Um, And we can only do that if Hummingbird House Brisbane is fully supportive um, philanthropically, Mm -hmm. corporately, um, and and I've got no doubt that it will. Well, let's do a quick plug because uh, you've got quite a... uh significant fundraising event coming up which is your charity ball don't you yeah we have the charity ball that's on june the third so thanks for that richard uh, yeah this will be our third gala ball event our first two had incredible corporate uh turnout um purely because of the relationships we built and mm-hmm. uh, people turned up and uh bought tables for two and a half thousand each just simply because they believed in not just the product but the process mm. they really got on board and said Queensland needs a children's hospice and so yeah that that first one we, we took a real leap of faith and uh yeah we got over 530 guests at our first ball and uh 610 at our next one and but again we it wasn't just about how we can get 500 ticket sales it was about how we can actually just get 50 tables and mm-hmm. we we knew we'd invested in the relationships but you know this is an exciting event uh, another event um for us now that we're actually built and so we know that this is a real taking flight mm-hmm. um the rest the first two were about how we make the building be realized now it's about everything how do we ensure that the operational costs are met by you know bringing together a community so coming together on june the third at the brisbane convention exhibition center and uh let's make this happen fantastic well we'll certainly uh put a link to that in the show notes so that anybody who's listening can uh go on and uh, purchase tickets and hopefully come along. We've spoken a lot about business today and about your career and so on and so forth, but just to close out the conversation, not that you've probably had a lot of time, but uh, you know what's uh, happening when you're not at work? I know that you've got a new baby and uh, that must be very exciting for you. Yeah, look, it's always family life is, you know, everyone I talk to at the executive level, you know, you, you don't want to get to the end of any career and say, Gee, I, uh, my regret is that I didn't build the business bigger. It's it's always about family over everything. We've been very fortunate that during the last six years that, um, you know, while it's been incredibly busy from everything, doing Tough Mudder to Bridge to Brisbane's and all those <laughs> sausage sizzle <laughs> fundraisers, we've just, you know, family is uh, absolutely prioritised. But um, for me, I think... My spare time, to be honest, is just anything that's, whether it's golf or whatever it is, where there's just relationships and uh, hanging out with some good people and uh, people that just have a, a socially, mm-hmm. you know, wired, that, that, that want to do something for great social impact. And, um, yeah, so whether it's long lunches that you guys host or, uh, you know, that's, you know, I love watching my sport or going to sport, but uh, if I can watch my sport in a corporate box mm. and build relationships at the same time in the, in the corporate networks, that's probably the, the ultimate thing that, that I love doing. Fantastic. Well, look, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, given that it's a Friday when we're having this conversation, have a fantastic weekend. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. Okay. 
Well, I'm sure you'll agree with me that Paul is an amazing man with an amazing story. And it was an absolute honour to have the opportunity to talk to him. And I firmly encourage those who are interested to reach out and perhaps go and have a look at Hummingbird House yourself or in some way support the incredibly valuable and necessary work that they do. I look forward to having you along for future Arate podcasts. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.